intentional. Throughout this series, we're going to be working on some practical ways we can get some new tools or update some tools in our spiritual toolbox, specifically in the way of being able to share our faith. We are called to live intentionally in every aspect of our life. We're called to live with intention in our finances, in our relationship. We're called to live in intention in regards to the way we interact with others and interact with God. But this specific message series, we're talking about living intentionally for Christ as we share the good news of Jesus Christ. Some of the students went back to school this week and some, some went back to new schools. And when you walk into a new classroom, the last thing that you want to happen is the teacher to ask you a question that you don't know the answer to. What you do is you look down and you don't make any eye contact with the teacher whatsoever as they're asking the question because you don't want them to call on you. If you do know the answer, 1 plus 1 equals 2, and you know the answer is, your eyes are up, you're looking to make eye contact, you want them to notice you, but when you don't know the answer, you're like, please don't call on me, please don't call on me, please don't call on me. In a similar way with our sharing our faith, we don't want to avoid and look down and avoid the wonderful opportunities that God gives us to share our faith with others. We want to be intentional about it and looking for those opportunities and moving forward in confidence. So this series won't give you every answer of every question because we're not called to know everything. We're called to know what is true and to live what is true. And we're going to be equipping you with new tools throughout the series. And this morning we're starting off with the foundation of life on purpose. You ever stop to think that the opposite of intentional, if you look it up in the dictionary, it's one of two things. It's either unintentional. The other word is the word accident or accidental. And we definitely don't want to live accidentally. This week I had an accident. I was down at the beach last Tuesday. It was a hot day. I came back from work and I grabbed the family and said, we're going down to the beach before dinner tonight. So we all went down to the beach and it was fairly rough out there, but it was a hot day. Now, if you can imagine Baywatch and and David Hasselhoff and running uh, slow motion into the water. And I know that there's stingers in the water. When it's calm, the stingers are all at the top. But normally, when it's rough, the stingers somehow just disappear and go away. So I thought, it's pretty rough today. As I ran into the water and dove incredibly, I dove down and went across the bottom. I was going to jump up and and, and wow my wife. And I went through a whole thing of stingers right into my face. Oh, Thank you. (laughs) I got more sympathy there than I did with my own family. And the stingers across my face, and I had some marks on my face for a couple of days, and you can feel that pain, can't you? And it was an accident. And I got up out of the water, and I walked very carefully back through the stingers, back to the shore, and I stayed out of the water the rest of the time. It was an accident. And when I discovered there was an accident, I'm not going to do that again. Last week on January 27th, there was a headline on the online news that said this, Wall Street employee accidentally causes stock market crash. The first paragraph of the article said this, 
The mistake of one lax employee has sent shockwaves through the financial world and wiped billions, get that, billions of dollars off the charts for some of the globe's largest companies. So we have billions of dollars lost because one person had an accident. They made a mistake. Now, mistakes happen. We all have accidents in life, and that's why we call them accidents. But I don't want to make an accident and have an accident twice. I want to learn from that accident and not make it again. I want to live intentionally. And that's what we're talking about today. Our challenge through this series is to live intentionally for Christ. Notice the focus is for Jesus Christ. The key idea about today is about the fact that God keeps his promises. Our principle is this. My life has purpose because God keeps his promises. And if God keeps his promises to you and to me and to the world, and God's the one who's keeping the promises, it results in we can live with incredible confidence. We don't know what the future holds, but we know who's made the promises for the future, and therefore we can move forward with confidence. In the Bible, in Joshua chapter number 21, verse 45, it says, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. In Philippians chapter 1, verse number 6, it says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So our response to that is, if God keeps his promises, and if he really does keep his promises, how different will we live our lives? We all know people that when they tell us things, instantly you think, there's no way that's going to happen. There's no way they're going to follow through. And maybe, don't, don't elbow anyone because I'll be able to see. We all know the people that we go, there's no way they're going to follow through. No one has ever said that with God because he keeps his promises. My life has purpose because God keeps his promises. We don't want to live like probably one of my favorite TV shows of the 90s. If you grew up in the 90s, good for you because you grew up in a great time to grow up. There was a sitcom on TV that you may have heard of before, and if you have, raised your hand, of called Family Matters. I didn't know it was called Family Matters as a kid growing up. We used to call it Urkel. You remember the, the, the character Steve Urkel? You remember him? Of course, I'm not going to give you my Steve Urkel impression, but you remember exactly how he said, did I do that? Anytime he'd make a mistake, and for the, for the young children who missed out on Steve Urkel, he would make all these horrible mistakes and crash and destroy things, and then he'd get up and with a silly little phrase go, did I do that? And you notice I'm not doing the Steve Urkel impression. And that's not the way we want to live life. We don't want to look back upon it and go, well, a big accident. We want to live with purpose and with intention. So we're going to look at the, in the Bible, in the book of 2 Kings, chapter number 6 and chapter 7. To put you in the time frame here, this is about 850 B.C. 
The prophet of God during this time is a man named Elisha. Elisha is a man who was a, a sincere and very honorable man of God. He was called away from his family, away from his livelihood, away from everything that he knew that he was comfortable with by his mentor, a man named Elijah. So Elijah called Elisha, which makes it very confusing. Follow me. And he left everything behind and he began to follow the great prophet Elijah. And during this time, Israel was very far from God. The king at this time brought the nation of Israel into a desperate situation. The king of Israel is a man named Jehoram. And Jehoram has the reputation and the heritage of a man who was very far from God. His parents were, if you know your Bibles, Ahab and Jezebel, which were some of the most ungodly people that led Israel so far away from God during that time period. And Elisha witnessed that and observed all the things that are taking place. Now King Jehoram is on the throne, and it says in 2 Kings chapter number 3, it says, He reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He made Israel to sin. He brought Israel to a point of being very, very far from God. And as a result of that, God allowed the surrounding nations to come in and oppress the people. The people were not following God. They were serving the false gods surrounding them. And there was a prophet in Israel named Elisha who was coming along and telling the truth time and time again. He was standing up for what was right and Again and again and again, Israel would turn away from God and the prophet Elisha was there to tell them the truth. God was protecting and keeping his promises even when the nation of Israel was turning their back on him and doing the wrong time and time again. And that leads us into chapter number six. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. In verse number 24, we see that the city of Samaria is under siege. The city of Samaria is in the nation of Israel and from the north, the Syrians had come down and they had surrounded the city. And as a result, the people were under siege. It says in verse 24, Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. Now, during this time, you imagine waking up in the, in the morning and you're getting up like every other morning, thinking about yourself and for yourself. Maybe you have a house on the wall and you look out and everywhere that you can see, there is an army surrounding you. You imagine the terror and the conversations around the breakfast table that day. What are we going to do? We can't get out because we're surrounded by this army that's going to defeat us. So they held in and stayed inside. But during that time, there was also something else happening inside. There was a famine taking place in that land. So there was a food famine. There was a lack of food. Now, this next part of this passage in verse number 25 tells you these people were physically in danger, but also they were physically starving to death and they were doing whatever that is that they needed to do in order to survive. Now, some of you are teenagers and, and many of you used to be teenagers and you may have remembered 
as a teenager starving to death. And you're thinking to yourself, I am so hungry. And maybe you even said, I'm going to die. I could eat a horse. Let's read. Verse 25 says, And there was a great famine in Samaria, and they had besieged it. And here's, here's the desperation. Until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver. And a fourth part of a cab, a cab is about a liter, I looked it up, a liter of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now, as a teenager, I have been hungry. I remember saying to my mom, Mom, I'm starving. I could eat a horse. But to be honest with you, I've never in my entire life been dove dung hungry. I've never been so hungry that you're gathering up bird poo and saying, do you know what? I think I could sell this. And people would buy it. That's the desperation that they were in. First of all, it makes you gag. I mean, my wife is an amazing cook. I mean, I eat like that every day. It's an amazing thing. She, she takes a, an ingredient and turns it into a magnificent meal. But I honestly don't know what she would do with bird poo and how she would make that into something delicious. This is the desperation that they were in. They were surrounded by an army. They were in a famine and they were running out of food. Inflation was skyrocketing. And we think it's bad when we walk into the shops during our COVID times and there was no toilet paper. I mean, those are tough times. That was nothing to compare to these times. And they come up with a solution. And when you're in a desperate time, you do desperate measures. And that's exactly what was taking place here. In chapter number 7, it records the story of four lepers. And these four lepers were in the proverbial no-man's land. As a leper, they had a disease that, that was incurable, was also very contagious. So they were outside of the city. They were not in the general population. And so on one side, you have the city that was starving and eating bird poo. And then you have the lepers who are stuck outside, and then the other side is you have the Syrian army. And these men say in verse number 3 of chapter 7, Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance of the gate, and here's the conclusion they came to. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? They've come to the conclusion, We're dying here. Now I can imagine as lepers, on the scale of who was going to receive food first, they were way down the list of who was going to be fed. And they thought to themselves, if we go inside the city, they're not going to feed us there. We're going to die. If we go over to the Syrian army, we possibly might get some food and they'll have mercy and compassion on us and give us some food and we'll survive. Or, at worst case, they'll kill us quickly and we won't be in pain anymore. Do you imagine what these men are going through? The desperation that they're going through? That, going back to chapter number 6, we see that they actually resorted to cannibalism. Now maybe you've said to a little baby, you've looked at a little baby and said, Oh, look how precious this is. I could just eat you up. And you've never meant it literally. It says in chapter number 6, verses 28 and 29, these are women that have come before the king, and they're complaining to the king because they've been wronged. It says, This woman said to me, 
Give me your son that we may eat him today. And we will eat my son tomorrow. I love my kids. Imagine the desperation that these people are in. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. And she goes to the king and complains to the king and says, King, this is what's happened to me. I've been wronged. Can you please demand that she feed us her son? And the king responds as they come before the government. And the government's response is he takes his clothes and he rinses them. He rips them. Now, normally when we see a person ripping their clothes, it's because they are being repentant and they're showing sorrow. And it's exactly what the king was showing. But he didn't turn his sorrow into godly sorrow of repentance towards God and saying, God, what are we doing? Help us here. He turned it around into anger and began to blame God. The government's response, as it says in verse number 31, May God do so to me and more also. If the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphath, remains on his shoulders today. He says, God's fault. This king here is not a follower of God. He's not considering God until the times are really, really tough. And then he turns it around and says, God, this is all your fault. As we look through this desperate situation that the the nation of Israel is going through, particularly this city, we can see some parallels with our world today. The parallels with today is this. We live in a world that is under siege. Our world is under siege. The king of this world is not Jesus Christ yet. The Bible says the prince of the power of the air is Satan. And the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter number 5, verse 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So we see that we are under siege. Our world is under siege. Our world is a broken world. We understand that we are in a spiritual famine. When right is seen as wrong and wrong is seen as right, we understand that we are in a spiritual famine where we, many of your, your workplaces, you're the only Christians that are there. It's not common to use the name of Jesus except for a swear word. We're in a spiritual famine. We also understand, we can see the parallel for today. When we have problems, we turn to the government for help. We say, government, Fix my problems. Develop another program. Give us more money. Provide for us here. And finally, when we go through difficult times, a desperate situation, even though we live in a world that is spiritually in a spiritual famine, we end up blaming God for the world that we're living in. We can see in our desperate situation our world today. But remember I said at the very beginning, God keeps his promises. In the face of insult, in the face of threat, the end of chapter number 6 leaves us with the prophet Elisha being told, we're going to kill you today because of how angry we are at what's going on here. And then we go to chapter number 7. 
many of you, probably the next page over, you'll see the response of Elisha. And he begins to share the word of God. As a prophet of God, he was speaking the words of God. And it says in verse number one, it says, But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. God was getting ready to make a promise. And he was going to promise, not saying to them, Well, you got yourself into the situation. Work it out for yourself. Well, you never come to me except when you need something. See you later. He comes along and he makes a promise that requires to be only God could do that. You ever prayed to God in a desperate situation? You've come to God saying, God, if you don't do something here, I don't know what we're going to do. Maybe you got a diagnosis from the doctor and the doctor says, and you've come to God and said, God, you're going to have to do something here. There's, I don't know what we're going to do. Maybe you've got a bill in the finances and you say, God, I don't know what you're going to, we're going to do here. You're going to have to do something. And God provides and God responds in a way that only God can do. And as a result, God receives the glory. We see here the salvation that's given. In verse number one, it continues and says, Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time, a say of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two says of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. That is, a say is about five and a half kilos. So five and a half kilos from being for a liter of dung for five shekels. Now you're going to get five kilos of flour for just a shekel. In other words, inflation is going to go down. Food's going to be plentiful and cheap. It's going to be anything you need. And a shekel was less than a dollar. Now, as I was going through that, it made me think of this meme that, that maybe you've seen. It says, back in my day, we had so much toilet paper and eggs that we would throw them at the houses of our enemies. You remember the, the old days when things were plentiful? That's what he's saying here. He says, in a, to, this time tomorrow, food's going to be plentiful. God was making a promise that only God can keep. The Bible doesn't record through that passage, everyone celebrating and saying, fantastic. It actually doesn't record anyone believing. It doesn't say that anyone says, thank you, God. That's wonderful. We can't wait until tomorrow. But we do see the, re the record of someone mocking and the mocking disbelief of one particular man. This is verse 2. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? He's basically saying God himself would come down, open the floodgates of heaven. This thing couldn't be. This is absolutely impossible. He's basically saying, I've never seen God work that way before. So there's no way that God could ever do that in the future. He's saying there, because I don't understand the way that God's working, there's no way it could possibly happen. You see the parallels with this God's promise with our world today. Our world today has a wonderful promise of the gospel. Jesus Christ himself says in John chapter 10, this is our parallels for today, in John 10, 10, 
I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's a promise given to us by God through Jesus Christ. We have a wonderful promise we can enjoy today. But we also see a disbelieving world. When this disbelieving world, we see in, in 2 Peter chapter number 3, where it says scoffers. Scoffers means mockers. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? We can see the parallels for today. We have a wonderful promise of God. We also see the name of Jesus being mocked and the salvation of God being scoffed at, saying, where is it today? So we started off with some desperation, a desperate situation. And then God comes along and makes a promise, a promise of salvation. You're going to have food. And then God provides, as our third point is the good news. We have the good news that God provides in a way that demands God's glory. No one else in the situation can say, you know what, that was really the king. Or that was really someone else. It was really the army of Israel that did this. God did something that only God can do, so God gets all the glory. And here's the, the rest of the story. Remember those lepers earlier who would, made the decision to, to leave the gate of Samaria and to go and put themselves in front of the Syrian army and ask for their mercy? Well, what we see is God's provision in that situation. In verse number 5 of chapter 7 says, So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. You see, as that passage continues on, it, it, it tells us that during the night, the Syrian army, who had the advantage, had totally surrounded the city of Samaria. They were going to win. They had starved, literally starved them out, and they were going to defeat this, this city. And then during the night, God caused the strong army to hear a noise. Now, I don't know how it is for ladies, but... At the nighttime, when there's noise around my house, I get an elbow in the ribs. And I get an elbow in the ribs and says, Michael, there's a noise. So I get up and I, I act really tough. And you walk around the house thinking, please don't be anything in here. Please don't be anything in here. And you walk around the house and you go, there was nothing there. Whew. Sorry, there was nothing there. Or I scared them away. This army, who was winning the battle, had heard a noise during the night. They had assumed that it was another army coming to defeat them. And it must have been a huge noise. The city of Samaria didn't hear this noise. So God caused these, this one group of people to hear this. And they got so scared that they dropped everything that was there and then ran away. And they didn't run a short way. They ran almost 40 kilometers over to the Jordan River and crossed back into their own homeland, leaving all their armor, leaving all their wealth and all their food behind. And then they ran away. And now we see the responsibility to share. These lepers, you imagine them walking into the camp, nervously walking in, 
wondering, are we going to be killed or are we going to have some mercy shown upon us? They didn't expect what they had. And it says in verse number eight, we see the responsibility to share. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. They would have been celebrating, stuffing their face with every bit of food they can fit in. And then they, they're, they're full of food and they go, we look at all this wealth. So they go and they naturally do the natural response. They start hiding it, thinking, we'll keep it for ourselves. And in verse number nine is really the key verse for this message today. Talking about living intentionally and living with purpose and allowing Christ to work in us and through us. He gives us opportunities. He provides miracles. And now we have the responsibility to share that with others. And what we see in verse number nine, it says, Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. They begin to consider all of their families, all of their, their friends back in the city, starving to death. And it goes on and says, Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. And they went to the gate and they explained what had taken place. They explained what they had seen. The people in the inside of the city did not believe them. But they sent out some spies and they came back after a period of time and confirmed that the Assyrian army had run away and had left everything behind. And everyone rushes out. And it says in verse number 16, Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. We can see a parallel with today, with Jesus' salvation. The book of Romans, chapter number 8. And I want you to see these words and follow along as, as I read this. It says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You notice that word, everyone? Do you know what that literally means? You. It means everyone. And it makes it very simple. It's the people that you love and even the people that you really don't care for. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a definitive statement at the end. It's not a might be saved or could be saved or really hope to be saved. It's a definitive statement of will be saved. We are called to live with intention, to live on purpose. And that passage continues on, and it talks about living the intentional life in verses 14 and 15. And that intentional life that we're called to live, it says this, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And you may be intimidated by the thought of preaching, but preaching is simply a word that means to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And how are they to preach or proclaim the good news unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Our goal for this series is to equip you with tools to help you confidently share your faith with others. 
So throughout this series, we're going to give you some different tools and different illustrations uh, to help you understand the, the, what, what Jesus Christ has done and to give you some tools to help you explain that to other people. So I'm going to give you an illustration here. Maybe you've been wondering why this whiteboard is here. On the screen, you're going to have a picture, and in your bulletin, you're going to have a picture that I'm going to draw here. And I've left this part in the bulletin blank because I want you to fill in the blanks for yourself. And I want you to do that so that you will hopefully remember this. And maybe God will give you opportunity this week to share this with someone else. And if nothing else, it helps you understand a concept. This is commonly referred to as the three circles illustration. I did not make it up. The first circle begins with God's design. We understand that we live in a broken and fallen world, but God has designed a perfect world. That design that he has for us is every aspect of our life. He has a design for your relationships. He has a design for your education. He has a design for the way that you interact with others. He has a design for the way the world works and also a design for your eternity. He has a design, and when we live in that design, it's a wonderful place to live, and we enjoy it, and it's tremendous. It's the way we were in, in initially created to live. But we also understand that we live in a broken world. And we live in this broken world and we're here because we have sinned. Now we all can understand and we admit that we are sinners. We understand that our sin has separated us from the perfect God's design that we we're all call to enjoy in our life. And in living in our brokenness, we naturally try many different ways of trying to get back to God and back to the design that we were originally intended. And we try that in varying different ways. People try it through relationships. If I just have someone say that I'm important, then I must be important. People try it with drugs and alcohol. They try it with education and with status. We try it with stuff. If I just have the latest this or the latest that, then I will finally have satisfaction and be fulfilled. And it's not through religion, it's not through, it's not through education, it's not through your wealth that we have God's design. So God had to do something that only God can do, and that's where we find this third circle. The third circle is a circle that says the gospel. The gospel is a word that simply means the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. He came to earth, lived a perfect life. And as we read earlier, the way we get this is through repent and believe. When we repent, we turn away from our sin. And what we do we believe? We believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, and he did what he said he was going to do. Jesus Christ really is God. He really did come to earth and die on the cross. He really did rise from the dead. But when we repent, we turn away from our old ways and the sin, and we turn toward the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did what only he could do. And as a result of that, when we accept him, now we live in a new life. And this new life, is the life that we are truly called to live today. And when we live in that new life, we recover and we pursue 
God's plan for our life back to his design. Now, that's a simple illustration to help you visually see what it is that God's done for us as individuals. And maybe this week you'll be speaking with someone and they're talking about how they're trying to do various things. They're trying to be good and they're trying to to overcome their brokenness. And you can see clearly that they're trying one of these. But really what they need is the gospel. And when we begin to visualize, I'm a visual learner. When I begin to visualize, I go, now I can see. It's not a big concept. It's not religion. It's a relationship with God through Jesus Christ that we come back to God's design. And that leads us right back into our conclusion this morning with communion. Communion is simply a picture and a reminder of what Jesus Christ has done for us. The Bible says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in a few moments' time, we're going to spend some time in silent prayer. You have have an opportunity to take this bread and to eat it, remembering it's a picture of Jesus' body that was broken for us on the cross. In your own time, you'll take the juice and we'll drink the juice, which is a picture of the, the blood that was shed for us in our sins. The Bible says, for the remission of our sins. And that will be a reminder to us to see what took place with the gospel so that we can enjoy God's design for your life and for my life.